0: If there's one thing that I want to constantly press, uh, constantly push on our, our church body as a whole, is this idea of what your life looks like and how your life needs to be positioned around the gospel. Um, for me, growing up in a, a Baptist church, uh, my understanding of what a missionary was uh, was one who would come on a Sunday night service dressed in a weird robe and they talked about their weird food and they had all these little, they had a table up front next to the communion table of uh, weird artifacts they got from their country that they used to live in and uh, the conversations would uh, often, they would, they would get up and greet you and the, the tongue that they were in and all this stuff and they'd give a presentation and then we'd support them and we'd clap and we'd pray for them and that was it. That's all I knew about a, a missionary growing up uh, and what's added to that as well would be I would leave there and we'd have a picture of them and their family to put on a refrigerator that had like a verse on it. You know, beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news or whatever, and they were always near a railroad track. I don't know why missionaries love railroad track pictures, uh, but it was there, and, um, and so I had that on my uh, refrigerator, and that's what I knew about missionaries, that's what I thought about missionaries, but no one actually told me that I was a missionary uh, because I was a believer, and so I always thought that you have to go into a vocation in order to do that, and so the way that it was in my church growing up, if you loved Jesus and you were about Jesus, they always assumed, are you going to be a little pastor one day, right? Little Johnny's going to be a pastor because he loves Jesus. And little Susie, she's just going to be a missionary because she just loves Jesus so much. And it was this kind of mentality of, you're a super Christian, therefore you should do missions work, or you should be a pastor. And that's not very good advice, because here's the thing, if you're a believer in Christ, you are a missionary. All right? You're a missionary. And that means everywhere you go, you are to bring and herald the gospel message everywhere you go. So if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're a teacher, if you're a janitor, if you're, you know, if you work at the city hotel, you are a missionary. This is what you do with your life. Your life is about Mission. All right? so it's very important that you grab that, okay? So here's what this looks like. Here's how this breaks down. This is kind of a longer introduction, so stay with me, but it's going to tie into what I believe Jesus is talking about this morning. Here's what this looks like in your life. If you are given a natural talent, some of you are naturally good at math, some of you are naturally, have photographic memories, some of you are naturally good at music, some of you are naturally good at science, some of you are naturally good at reading, I'm not one of those people, but you're naturally good at that. Who do you think has given you that gift? Some of you have finished a college degree, Some of you who moved on to go on beyond college and get a master's or a doctorate. who do you think has given you that degree? You like, well, my parents are paying for it, or I 'm in a lot of debt still, and I 'm still paying it off and I 'll be that well, Who do you think is going to pay that off for you? right? Who do you think has given you the natural talents and the natural ability? Who do you think has given you the good, the bad and the ugly that has happened to your life? Who do you think has placed that there? And why do you think God has done that in your life? So that you would be strategically placed in a certain place of the world at some point in your life to share the gospel with those that the Lord puts you in contact with. And so here's, here's what this means for you. As a, I'll just say this to the college students first. Because we've got a lot of freshmen here, and you're, you're excited to be here, and you're you know, ready to go. And, and the thing is, like, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to come here and think, I'm just here for four years, and I'm out of here. right? I, I'm, I'm just here for four years. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to move on. I'm going to be a whatever, and I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And this is, this is the only reason why I'm here to do this. No, actually, God... The creator of all things, has allowed you and given you the gifts and the abilities and the GPA and the money and the finances and all that stuff so that you could be placed in at ECU to live in Greenville or Pitt Community College to live in Greenville so that you could reach the people that God has strategically placed you in, whether it be a dorm or an apartment or a housing development, God has strategically done that, knitted all the stuff in your life together so that you could do that with, with your neighbors and those that you're in contact with. I mean, even the stuff that's happened to you. So if you become from a divorced family, which I do, you are the stuff that has happened to you that is difficult and challenging in your life has happened to you that God has placed. One of the reasons that God has done that, even in your life, is so that God would use your story and redeem your uh, the things that have happened in your life, so that you could share the gospel with those that He continues to put you in front of. I mean, when you think about the sovereignty of God in this way and how it relates to our mission, it just blows your mind, does it not? And for you, if you have a career, if you're out of college and you're already kind of uh, putting your nose to the grindstone every single day, you're just doing the uh, not, you know, nine to five, five to whatever. You know, you're just working your tail off for the man or whatever this works. God has given you that job. God has given you the things that have happened to you in your marriage, the trials that you've faced. God has given you. All of those things so that you would be beside another person in a cubicle who does not know the gospel. That neighbor that you don't love so much, that always cuts the grass a little too short on your side of the lawn. Yep, that's the one that God has placed you specifically to so that that person would hear the gospel from you specifically. That's that's what God does. That's what he does. And so if we start to get in this place of believing that our career is just about me just making money, me providing for my family, or or my my school is just about me finishing this degree, then we're going to get messed up in a world that never ends of constantly chasing our own consumerism. So I don't want that. I, I want our church to be a place where a college student comes, they come for four years, they grow in the gospel with other believers that are older than them, that are younger than them, they're gleaning from the whole body, and then they spend two years after college just to do missions work. Wouldn't you love to see that? The churches that Integrity wants to send out and wants to plant that you would go and be a part of a core team after college— I mean, maybe you would tap into, I love Southeastern Seminaries, where I went, uh, to do what they call a 2 plus 2 program where you would go and you would do two years overseas and live there for two years and do missions work and, and then you'd come back and you'd finish your master's in two years and it, it would be amazing if our church were sending out people in this way. And this is the way we want to grow our church, by sending people out. So It's important that you grasp the weightiness of mission Man, I, I want to do this, man, because I want to beat the Mormons. Like, every year, they're, like, sending people—you know what I'm saying? So, man, we gotta, we got to do that as a church body. We've got to do that. And so, man, this is the right church for you if, if you care about missions, if you care about the gospel. And if you don't, um, I hope you will at the end of this that you'll see the beauty of Christ. So, what I want to do this morning is explain to you why mission is for everyone, and it's, it's non-negotiable. All right? what jesus does here in luke 21 i'm going to set it up before i go into reading the text what luke does here in verse in chapter 21 is he talks to his disciples specifically about the destruction of the temple. Now, the temple was this massive structure. All of life happened, if you were a Jew, around the temple. It's where you gave your sacrifices, where you gave your offering. If you were a husband, you took your family to the temple to to do burnt sacrifices for the forgiveness of your sin for all the family. And Jesus is telling his disciples, this thing is going to be crushed to the ground and there will not be one stone that's left. And it just blew their minds because this is where all of life took place. And what Jesus is showing them is that Judaism is going to be over. That's it. And what Jesus actually says does take place. In 70 AD, this thing is destroyed to the ground. The Romans surround all of Jerusalem and they wipe out this entire place. The scriptures even tell us in Luke 21 that um, women who are pregnant are are killed by the edge of the sword. Young children are killed. And uh, Jewish historian Josephus actually says that close to a million people were killed during this great destruction of this massive structure. And so Jesus d- does this, is he compares and contrasts what this looks like compared to the coming of Christ, of himself, his second coming. And if you look at the very end of what he, well, how he handles this is in, is in chapter 21, uh, actually, I'll just, I'll just read that. Let's, let's grab um, some verses before. Look in verse 24. He says this about the destruction of the temple. Verse, chapter 21, verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led, he- and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. There he's talking about the Romans who are going to trample them underfoot. Until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now what is he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. Stay with me here because this is very important that we grasp to understand missions. Us, that we... Our believers in Jesus, we're non-Jews, we're Gentiles, and we are in the time of the Gentiles. That God's plan before the foundation of the world is so that the gospel will be spread to all nations, and that includes us here this morning. That is why we're gathered this morning, because we are in the time of the Gentiles, that the gospel would be consistently proclaimed among generation to generation, among all nations, that this is what the gospel would be. And then what Jesus does is he continues to press into his disciples and he explains to them when the end of the Gentiles, when that end looks like. And he says, just like how the end of the Jews was the destruction of this temple, in the same way the end of the Gentiles would be at Christ's second coming, that's when we no longer live in this world. That we will be with Jesus forever and ever in glory, amen. And it's incredible. That one day, all of us who are gathered, who believe in Christ Jesus as Lord, as Savior, will be without sin, without pain, without suffering. And this happens when he comes and he takes his church. This is the beauty of the second coming. And so, in the same way, just like when the temple was destroyed, there were many people who thought they knew who God was. But when the temple was destroyed, we realized that only a few actually believed in the same way in the second coming of Christ. There's a lot of people here in the South. There's a lot of people here in the U.S. that have cultural Christianity. And they think that they're saved, but when the second coming of Christ comes, we will realize who the true believers are and will only be a few. And that's a sobering reminder because what the second coming will actually do is it will not quicken non-believers to repent. The scripture actually tells us that it will it will um, terrify them. So look in verse 25. It says this. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and on the earth, distress of the nation, in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear, foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And they will see the Son of God and Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And so this scene right here... Is, is important for us to know because we are not going to know when Christ is going to return. I, I know that every few years it seems like somebody, a guy writes a book and says, I know when Christ is going to come. He's going to come on this day and then everyone freaks out and there's billboards up and I just think about the money that is spent on things like this. I'm like, dude, you could plant a church with the amount of money that you spend on billboards saying when Christ is going to return because he's not. Going. And by the way, even if you had it right, he would probably change it because just to prove to you that you're wrong, right? And so I, It just blows my mind that people still think because of what Jesus even says in Matthew 24 he says no one knows not the angels of heaven nor the son of man so when Christ was here on earth who was perfect and sinless in every way he didn't even know when he was on earth when, when he was going to return so what in the world makes us think that we will figure this thing out what, what makes us think that and so he's saying this, we don't know in certainty that, he, that when he's coming, but we know for certainty that he is coming, and we, we await that as believers. And so we're excited about that. And so here's what this means for us, for believers. That means that we don't freak out about the end of the world, all right? That means we're not always fearing death. I, for me personally, I, I'm not that afraid of death, I'm just afraid of how I'm going to die, I have always these fears of sharks. I've been watching Shark Week, and I've been staying up all night of this picture of the shark ripping my leg off and then watching his you know, shark 16-foot body over and he's got my leg in the mouth and you know, I'm watching blood fly out and I can't swim, I'm, drow- you know, I'm drowning. because it's, And I'm just so scared to death of this sight. I'm also afraid of cobra bites. I'm just so worried about a cobra biting me in eastern North Carolina because um, I know that's so possible that, that would happen. And so, I'm, man, I'm scared to death of of these types of things, but I'm not worried that much about death, to be honest. It just doesn't, I'm worried about my family being provided for, but I also know that God's sovereign and good above all things. And so one of the things that I think believers have to get to a point where you're not freaking out so, in this economy, man, uh, people are freaking out. Like, uh, uh, here's what this means for you in this economy. That you don't have a bomb shelter in your backyard, all right? Your children should not, not and you have to use a, an Uzi to get by, okay? You should not have a frag grenade in your house, okay? I'm just saying, you shouldn't have it. Trust the sovereign God who's in control of all things. He loves you. Uh, he's going to tell you that the end of the world is going to be fine if you're a believer because you're going to be with him in glory, and this is the, the, the joy that we have in the second coming. So We don't freak out about the end of the world. The end of the world is not really the end of the world, right? That's the way we live as believers. And so, what he shows us is how a believer will look like. Look in verse 28. I love this verse. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your hands because your redemption is drawing near. Look at the posture of worship and eagerness to see the Son of God for a believer. We're so excited about his return. This is the difference. And so, look in verse 29. He begins to explain what this looks like. He tells this parable, verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you will see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until... All has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Now, it's important for you to remember this, and I, I've talked about this a lot when I talk about parables, is that when Jesus talks about a parable, he's always showing what the kingdom of God is like. I know people try to make parables into something they're not. We try to build on like life lessons from parables. He's, all, he's always showing what the kingdom of God is like. So, our kingdom is like this. Here on earth, we understand things this way. He's saying, no, my culture, the way I do things, my words are not my words. My thoughts are not your thoughts. The kingdom of God is Different than the kingdom that we have here on earth. And so what he does is he explains parables to show that, and he does this in a way. He says the kingdom of God is like a fig tree. The kingdom of God actually is like all trees. That when seasons change, that when moments change, we will know when Christ is going to return. We can't know precisely, but we can know that he is going to return. And so this is what the the comparison is that he uses. And so when Jesus does this, when he talks about the kingdom of God, he often talks about it in a past, a present, and a future. And it's kind of confusing because you're trying to figure out what he's saying. So like, for example, the Pharisees ask Jesus when the kingdom of God is coming. He says, it's right here. And they're like, where? Right in front of you. I'm the kingdom of God. So can you imagine what this would have sound like to a Pharisee who's a religious elite? They were saying, you're the kingdom of God? How arrogant are you? That's why they crucified him, by the way, because he claimed to be God. Not because he was just a good God. He claimed to be God. That's why they crucified him. He's saying, I am God. He's the kingdom of God. But there's a point of it where we, right now, are in the kingdom of God if we're believers in Jesus. Because he saved us and redeemed us from Satan, sin, and death because of his resurrection. So, man, we're a part of the kingdom of God, but we don't have the fullness of the kingdom of God because the second coming of Christ has not taken place. We know Jesus if we're believers. We live uh, free from sin. Even though we're going to sin, we're still free from the the, um, penalty of sin. But, man, there's still sin in this world, is there not? I mean, is there still suffering? Is there still pain? Is there still doubt? Is there still longing? Is there still frustration and anger that takes place? Is there still war, violence, and poverty? Yes. That means the kingdom of God is here already, but it's not yet been fulfilled. So it's the point of the kingdom of God that's already, but not yet. All right? You tracking with that? It's important that you grab this because it ties into how we see missions because here's the question what does this have to do with missions everything everything here's the thing we if we live our lives on mission disciples of Jesus we can never bring heaven here on earth it won't happen because, as much as we serve Greenville, our, our church, we try our best every year to pour into Greenville. And then we just did this whole thing this summer where we served Greenville. We went to different schools and we tried to help them, you know, if we painting, renovation, and all this stuff. And we can do all those things all day long, but guess what? The paint's going to chip in a few years, right? Um, the mulch that we just laid at a playground is going to be washed away, right? The people that uh, were helped in, on the Haiti mission trip, some of them even helped medically, will eventually die. Will they not? And they're going to eventually fade away. All the things that we do for people for God's glory to display the gospel is going to eventually fade away. So what, why do we do missions and why do we do good things? So that we can display the beauty of the gospel in a tangible way where people can see it. But the vision is not bringing heaven to earth. The vision is just to proclaim and display the gospel where people can see that we love our city and we love the nations. But so how this ties into missions is this. If we consistently go out and share the gospel and we're going among all nations through church planning and missions, here's what we're doing. We're constantly reminding people, if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, you have to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. But you'll never know the fullness of it until he returns. So as you become a believer, know this. Sin still exists in the world. There's still poverty. There's still pain. There's still suffering. But this world is not our home. And that is the hope that we have when the kingdom of God fully takes place at a second coming. It's going to remind us that this is not the end. That's a beautiful thing, right? Right? And that is a really beautiful thing. I'm 33 years old, and I've got bad knees. I'm going to have new knees. I'm going to dunk in heaven. I cannot wait for that, right? I can't believe that. People have been picking on me about red hair all my life, man. I can change that stuff. I'm not going to because I think all people will have red hair in heaven. It will be normal. (laughs) But I'm just saying it's going to be incredible because everything about this life shows me and reminds me that this world's not my home. I'm surprised no redheads gave me an amen on that, man. That's just messed up. Um, so what we do with our lives, it's about us living and emptying ourselves for the sake of the gospel. When Christ came, he died on the cross for us. The Bible says that he emptied himself by taking on all the sins of the world. And so our life in response to that is in constant we're constantly emptying ourselves until he returns. So what Christ does, is he speaks of this temple being destroyed, and he's like, in the same way that ended Judaism, this second coming is going to end what we know as life as we know it. And this is what he does. He turns to his disciples and he tells them how to be prepared for the temple being destroyed and the coming of Christ. And so what I want to do, I was want to show you how a lot of this stuff will apply to the way we live our lives on, as on-mission disciples and how there are things in here, if we don't grasp, it will totally kill our mission while we're here on earth. So let me just show you that. Look at what he says to his disciples. He says this, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now listen to this. The first thing that Jesus tells his disciples when they are about to face great intense persecution so that they will be greatly used by the gospel. Even You see even uh, earlier in the chapter, he's saying, you will be my witnesses. You will make much of my name. But this is what he's saying. Watch yourselves. If there's anything that consistently repeats itself to true disciples of Jesus, it's this concept that Jesus continues to ring with his disciples. You even see Paul do it later on in the Pauline epistles. You see Jesus do it in Luke 17 to his disciples. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Paul even says this to uh, the church in um, Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was one like we've never seen before. It had blown up and and it affected all of Asia. And what was very interesting about this, Paul tells the elders of the church listen, fierce wolves are going to come in and try to feed on the flock. But here's what you have to do pay attention to yourselves and the flock that I've entrusted to you. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul does the exact same thing. You have a church full of people who are desiring this big-time leader named Apollos to show up. He was like this excellent speaker. He was like a Charles Spurgeon of the Bible, right? John Piper, Billy Graham of the Bible, and they love this guy. And they're waiting. When when is he going to show up so he can give us more sermons? He says, no, I don't know if he's going to show up or not, but here's what you need to do. He tells the men this specifically in the church. Pay attention to yourself. Stand firm in the faith and act like men. You see this constantly, even in First Peter. Peter um, tells the scattered church, very similar to the scattered people that will be here after the destruction of the temple in seventy A.D. He tells this to the scattered church in, in First Peter. It says this: First Peter five five. It says, "Be sober-minded. Be watchful." And you even see it in First Timothy four sixteen. Paul tells young Timothy, "Keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching." So everything about us making disciples, he always presses back first to the disciple-er, keeping watch on yourself. Did you notice he says, keep a watch on yourself and the teaching? So how we know ourselves is vitally important to even how we interpret Scripture and how we proclaim Scripture. I mean, even with Paul telling the church of Ephesus this in Acts 20, he says, keep your watch on yourself and the flock. So you can't keep your eye on the flock unless you keep your eye on yourself. If you, even if you look at the um, qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it's not where he went to seminary, What all the stuff he knows. It's all, it's all about how he manages his household, which is how he manages his own heart. And man, this is challenging for me as a leader, but it should be challenging for you as well as a discipler. By the way, all Christians are disciplers, okay? There's no such thing as a Christian who's not a disciple. It doesn't exist. If you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. So here's what, he does, here's what I've seen in my own life. Constantly. I've been through seminary, through Bible college. Uh, I've seen—well, I didn't finish seminary. Bible college, halfway through seminary. I'm still working on it. Maybe one day. Um, what I've seen in my own life, um, being in the ministry since 18 years old. I'm 33 now. I've constantly seen men and women who are gifted, who are unbelievable communicators, unbelievable disciplers, unbelievable servants that have morally fallen, and they are no longer in ministry. It's been one of the saddest things that I've seen. They've either failed doctrinally because they didn't trust the God of the Bible. They began to bend and change and became heretics, or they fail morally. And one of my best friends recently, I've known this guy since eighth grade, walked alongside of him his whole life. He's been in my life, and he just fell morally. I've noticed him starting to move away from me in the last two years. Then I find out, I get a call. He's cheated on his wife. Man, close to 40% of pastors have an extramarital affair while they are pastors. Does that blow your mind or what? So this is for me very important because the attitude that I often see in pastors and leaders and people who are just in ministry or discipling others is this idea that they're above sin. I mean, you ain't above sin. I and mean, you can fall just like that. I mean, Jesus even says, well, I'll just read it to you. Let's just finish what Jesus says. Verse 34. Be watchful, lest your hearts be weighed down with the dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. I mean, this thing is going to trap you. That's what he's saying. And the people that act like they're above sin are arrogant, and they're going to end up here. It's going to trap you. So, dude, if you're this guy and you're thinking, man, I can be pure and still lay in the bed with my girlfriend and watch Lost, no, you cannot, right? I mean, these dudes, I I get it all the time. Guy and girl come to me, they want to get married, and they're they're shacking up, right? They're saying, oh, we we still have a pure relationship. There's something medically wrong with you. Right? If you still have pure relationship and you're sleeping with this girl in the same bed, you're watching her come out of the bathroom with a towel wrapped around and you're not thinking stuff, whatever, dude, like, get out, right? Get out, right? We're going to take you over to the hospital they're going to check you out and make sure you're still a dude, right? (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) right? Because, man, if we act all like we're above sin, we are not, man. We're not. I'm a pastor, but, man, I'm just as weak as probably anyone in this room. And, man, that means for me, Man, I don't meet with girls one-on-one. If I do, it's going to be out in public. It's going to be outside where people can see it, right? I ain't going to ride in the car with some girl, right? Man, for me, with my money, like, man, it was very important to me early on, even in the beginning when we, our church was like nine people. Man, I did not handle the offerings. So we get a $5 bill come in there, that's about what we would run then, you know? And um, now we run 10, so it's, you know, we're excited about the double in the last few years. Um... For me, personally, I I was very cautious about that. So somebody would zip up an envelope, and I'd meet some, uh, there's an older lady of a a great church, um, older traditional church. They wanted to help us, and I said, you know what would help us? If you did our bookkeeping and all of our money, and you wrote me a check every week, because I don't want to write myself a check. That's weird, right? And even now, people come up to me, hey, I forgot to put this money in the offering. Can you? I'm like, no! Like, I'm just backing off, because I don't want. Because I know, man, I'm not above that thing, man. You give me 20 bucks, I'm going to use that mess, man. I'm not going to lie, right? Because, <laughs> man, I'm, I'm messed up, right? And so here's, what, here's where we, we end up. If we're not careful, if we're not watchful, we're going to end up in a trap. And so he's saying this, if there's any ministry killer, it's men and women who fall by the wayside because they're not being watchful. Now who's speaking in your life right now? Who's asking you the hard questions about your purity, your, your quiet times, your prayer life, how you're on mission? Who's asking you those questions? Who's asking you the questions that you don't want to be asked? And that's important. You've got to have that because if you're not, you're going to consistently be rogue and the, you're missing out on the importance and the beauty of the body of Christ. That's why, the is, that's why the church is the church. Some people say, I can worship God in the cornfield. Actually, you can't. Because that's weird, but second of all, you need other believers to speak into your life and challenge you, impress you, so that you can consistently be watchful. You know, the, the craziest people to me are always people who are by themselves because they've convinced themselves that they're right about everything. If you don't ever have anyone speaking truth in your life, you can end up that way. You can end up being trapped. And so, being watchful means how well do you know yourself? How well do you know your tension points? But look at the result of one who's not watchful. He says this person's trapped. I mean, there's three ways that I think the, a, a, a skeptical culture looks for in the church three things. I think the skeptical culture wants to see how we view money, how we view sex, and how we view power. If we're not striving for purity as a church body and as believers in Christ, I mean, the skeptical world will see nothing, nothing different. I mean, for, for money... If someone were to look at your bank account, would they be able to see that you actually care about the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus' good name? Would they be able to see that? Would they be able to see any sacrifices that were made because a lost and dying culture? If they see that's different, I think, we'll see, I think we'll start to see an interest there for what Christ is all about. Man for power, how we view power is so important. If if you've been given a role of authority, how do you handle that role of authority? Do you use it to use other people for your own gain, for your own uh, wealth, for your own glory? Or is it about you serving others as a servant leader? By the way, Christ was a servant leader. He came to serve us, but he was also an authority over us. So if we want a perfect picture of authority, we look at Jesus, but we don't live our lives... Talking down to people and acting like our role even matters in the end, but our role is something that we are control people with. There's something that angers me more, our arrogant and prideful, know-it-all ministers of the gospel. If you want to see this redhead dude punch somebody in the face, bring me an arrogant pastor, right? It just drives me crazy. I mean because this is no place for arrogant people and prideful people. And this is why in integrity, all of our life group leaders, I, I consistently, we just did life group training last week. I said, listen, if you're arrogant, this is not a place for you. I don't want arrogant people. I want people who are servant-minded leaders like Jesus. That means they serve people and they, they, teach, the, they teach sound doctrine. They serve people as they lead. And so, man, this is what we need as believers. So if we were to look in those areas in your life, how you view sex, how you view money, how you view power. How close will we get to your love for the gospel? And so look how we fight this. This is what Jesus says. He says, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. How often do we honestly pray about our own heart? God, show me my heart, how weak I am, Lord, how much I need you, how much I... Desire, You show me, Lord, the sin in my life that I'm constantly fighting and I don't want to give up. Show me those things, God. How often do we pray in that way? The things that we pray about show us a lot about what our treasure actually is. So if we're always praying about prosperity, maybe our idol is prosperity. If we're always praying to get a relationship, right? Or a, a wife or a husband, maybe our idol is a wife or a husband. If we're always praying for, for me personally, the health of my kids, Maybe my idol is the health of my kids, even though that's a good thing to pray for, but it can be an idol. But maybe I should be praying, God, help me be watchful. Help me to see my own heart as what it really is. Help me show me, Lord, where places in my heart where I don't love you, and I don't care about your mission. And so look at the life of Jesus and how he lived. Look at this. Let me just show you this in closing. Look at this. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out, and lodged on the mountain called uh, Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I love this because what actually means uh, that he lodged there, it actually means, the phrase actually means camping out. And Jesus was lived this life where he was constantly camping out, Man, if that could just be us. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should be homeless as Jesus was. I mean, Jesus says this in Matthew 8, 20. He says, foxes have holes, birds have, uh, of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm not saying we should live for homelessness. But look at Jesus' life. It was in the open hand. Everything was about the open hand. Because his obedience, his, his obedience was so much that he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And his life was constantly about emptying himself so that people would see the beauty of the love of God. Man, that's us. And what what an impact we could make on Greenville. If all of us in this room were all about emptying ourselves, if we were about being watchful for our own hearts and what kills us on our mission, and we await the second coming. I don't know about you, man. But I often do not await the second coming. I'm often thinking about there's just one or two more things I'd like to do before the coming of Christ. You know what that is in my own heart? It's idolatry. I hate to say that, but it's absolutely true. That there's things in my life that I'm not ready for the fullness of the kingdom of God. But God, I'm praying that he would change that in me. And I'm praying that he would change that for you as well.